Morning, everybody. Great to see you today. It's great to have Grace Live back on True Live. We've actually been on a seven-week hiatus from actually being True Live. We did a uh, series from the past because we wanted to improve some things. We also had some copyright issues during the uh, movie series. So anyway, welcome back, Grace Live. Love to have you uh, here today. I think that you'll notice some improvements over the next coming weeks. So today we're talking about Jesus on Divorce. And what Christ had to say specifically in Matthew chapter 19 about divorce. I want to begin, though, with a scripture out of Malachi. So the very end of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, chapter 2, verse number 16, God says, I hate divorce. And that only makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, no one enters into a marriage saying, you know what, I'm going to get married, then I want things to go really south and get really bad and have a terrible, terrible, nasty divorce. No one says that. When you get married, you have hopes, you have dreams, and if you're getting divorced, it means those hopes and dreams have been dashed. It means that those things that you wanted to see happen in that relationship did not materialize. And so, of course, God hates divorce because he hates to see, like any really good parent, they don't want to see their children suffer. And in divorce, his children are suffering. And so, of course, God hates divorce because he doesn't want to see that happen. I want to say two things right at the outset that are very, very important to this. This is a two-week series. It takes two weeks. This is really one big, long message that I cut into. Long, long message. Because nobody wants to hear me talk for an hour straight. So I cut it in two. So it's going to actually take two weeks to totally unfold. Here's the second thing I'd like to say. It's really important. I'm about ready to read what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 19. And for some of us here, what we hear in Christ's words are going to upset us. They're going to frustrate us. They're going to hurt us or confuse us. For others of us, it's not going to be a challenge at all. We're going to feel completely unchallenged. We're going to say, you know what, I've heard these all my life. I'm very familiar with them. How many ways can you interpret what Jesus says? It's very, very simple. Get over it. Let's move on. So it's unchallenged. And what I want to suggest to you is that you be patient with this process. It is going to take me two weeks to unpack this passage. And it's going to take the entirety of the two weeks to unpack this passage Not all the questions are going to be answered today. More will be answered next week, but even at that, not all the questions will be answered. But to be patient with the process as it unfolds. So let's read Christ's words in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 10. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever 
divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The very thing that the disciples say to Jesus at the end is he has raised the bar so high about the importance of marriage. Like marriage is special, like right from the very beginning that marriage was instituted, that it's so important. I was like, oh my gosh, because in their day, divorce was rampant and they held it very loosely, lowly. And he's saying it's really important. You just can't do anything that you want. It's very, very special. And you need to guard your marriage. Like, oh my gosh, if we got to do that, it's better for us just not to even be married. But I want to go all the way back to the beginning of this. Because at the beginning, these Pharisees are asking him a very specific question. He doesn't answer it. He doesn't bother to answer. It's like, hey, can you divorce your wife for any cause? And then he totally doesn't answer. He says, you know what? In the very beginning... God says the two will become one and we shouldn't separate that. It's a beautiful thing. It reminds you of a wedding ceremony, right? You've been to wedding ceremonies, very special time, very emotional time, very intensely emotional, a lot of tears. People are saying, I promise you're the greatest thing in the world since like sliced bread. I've never met anybody like you. You're incredible and there's crying and I promise till what? Till death do us heart. I'm with you. And so what Jesus's words there are not controversial whatsoever, are they? Yeah, like we're in, we're one flesh. But then he says, things go wrong. Well, they actually say to him, this is, hey, Moses, Moses commanded that we give a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's nowhere where Moses commanded anybody to give a certificate of divorce. Moses allowed you to give a certificate of divorce. Why? Because because there's a hardness of heart, because, you're, because stuff happens in marriage. And with the stuff that happens in marriage, sometimes your heart hardens. And then you persistently create a toxic situation in your marriage. And so Moses allowed divorce. He's not commanding divorce. So all that is cool. We all get that. We get exactly what's going on here. It's verse number nine that kind of jolts us to attention. Like, whoa, what did you say? So I want to read it again. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In the way that this has been interpreted and in the way it's been understood, in the way maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, maybe this is the first time you ever read this, like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that if somebody remarries, except there's been sexual immorality, which that means they had an affair, okay, except for that case, if that hasn't happened and somebody divorces and that hasn't happened and they remarry, they're in a perpetual state of adultery. And that's where everybody freaks out. Like, wait a minute. How many ways are you going to interpret that? Because that... That sounds rough, right? Who can, who can live underneath of all of that? And so here's the question that they are bringing to Christ. Now, I'm going to restrain myself from sharing stories about people who are in a terrible, terrible, toxic relationship, sometimes abusive, physically, emotionally, whatever, and they have gone to somebody and said, what does God or what does the Bible have to say about divorce in this situation that I'm in? And people are like, well, you know, unless your partner or your spouse has had an affair, that you've got to stay in this marriage. 
Actually, you know, I've heard of stories like that, but they're, I, I think they're few and far between, and they're kind of an extreme, so uh, I'm not going to get into the real-life practical stories that I hear that have happened, but some of you hear, and I hear them told on and on and on, okay? But what exactly is Jesus saying here? Like, if you're in a toxic marriage, according to the Bible, are you, st- are, like, are you basically praying that your spouse would have an affair so you can get out of that relationship? Do we have to go to that level of praying for something like that? Oh, God, please let them have an affair so I can end this terrible marriage. What exactly is Jesus saying here? How we understand the Bible, and this is why I've been saying all the weeks leading up to this that I'm excited about this series, because I want to talk about something that's really important. Whether it's the issue of divorce that you see here or other issues, and there's not a huge amount of them, but other issues that we come across in the Bible, we read them and are like, whoa, I don't, I don't like that. Here's a way that we can understand what the Bible is saying, or at least how the process, the process, the principles of the process of understanding what is the Bible really saying here? Because sometimes we come across texts like this on issues that are difficult, and we say, you know what? I don't like that. So we fall on one side or the other. We say, I don't like that. That's ridiculous. The Bible's outdated. I don't care for it. I'll pick and choose. A lot of stuff in the Bible I like, but I don't like this, so I'm just going to not bother dealing with that. Or others will say, you know what? That's the way it is, and you better get on board with it because this is the way it is, and if you're not, you're a sinner and whatever, okay? There could be a better way because the Bible actually everybody, and I think that this statement can actually be substantiated in some way, but that's a different sermon. The Bible has had greater impact in a positive way on this planet than any other book that has ever been written, okay? So we're at least, at the very least, we're talking about a book that has had profound positive impact. So why would we come to a passage like this when there's so much that is so positive, good for this human race and say, well, I don't like this. I'll do that. I think there's a, a more intellectually responsible way to deal with difficult passages. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as a lead into next week where we'll really unpack Matthew 19. And here's the point. Context creates clarity. Here's the real, I'll, I'll talk about it next week too. But to set all this up, if we don't get this, we're not going to get anything. Context creates clarity. We must understand the context of the Bible. We have to understand it when we come to Matthew 19 in these words of Jesus, particularly verse number nine. There is a specific context and a specific audience. So many times in the Bible, I think just about every time in the Bible, when something is written, it's written to a specific group of people. And in this case, it's written to a specific group of people asking a very specific question about one verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And it's very specific. And they're speaking in a way. The phrasing actually is given in a way that everybody exactly knew what was being asked here, but none of us do. We don't understand it because we're not in their context. So we have to understand their context. And here's the great thing about the time that we live in. For the last 200 years, we've had an explosion of knowledge. We've made all kinds of findings, whether it's the Dead Sea Scrolls or a synagogue in Cairo, that where they discovered all kinds of things about what was going on in that world in that day that help us understand exactly what question is being asked here. Jesus never criticized the Bible. You, you read sometimes in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, and he's commenting on the Bible. 
But I tell you this, he's not changing the Bible. He's not criticizing the Bible. What, what Jesus often does, everybody, he very frequently criticizes people who misinterpret the Bible. That is very important to us. Why? Because when you come to this issue or other issues, if you misinterpret the Bible, you could be pushing people away from the truth of Christ and his love and his word and the transformation that Christ wants to do in people's lives. So he criticizes people who misinterpret it. So we have to get this right. Now, let me tell you why context is so important. If I was to say, I'm going to say a phrase to you all, and I don't think there's anybody in the room who's going to misinterpret anything I say when I say these few brief words to you, okay? But 2,000 years ago, if I said it, they would totally misinterpret. They have no idea what I'm talking about, all right? The legal drinking age is 21. Is anybody confused about what I'm talking about? Uh, am I not going to allow you or is the state not going to allow you to drink water until you're age 21? Is anybody, is, is anybody in the room remotely confused when I tell you that the legal drinking age is 21? Now, 2,000 years ago when they heard that, that the legal drinking age is 21, they're like, what? That doesn't make a bit of sense. You can't drink water. You're going to die. You're going to die. What, do they want to kill everybody under the age of 21? What is happening in the year 2019 in the United States of America? Okay? What's happening? Okay, so context is really important and things that make total sense to us because we have a way of speaking and things that are tremendously popular and there's something here that's tremendously popular that they immediately got that we are totally confused about. Context is really important. Now, I'm a part of a lot of weddings. Either I'm standing up front officiating or I'm sitting and I'm participating somehow or other in weddings. So I'm, I'm just a part of a lot of different weddings. Every now and then, this does not happen often, But every now and then, I will have a bride say, as a part of their vows, they'll say, hey, uh, during my vows, I want to say that I will obey my husband. This does not not happen often, I say. (laughs) It happened a handful of times the past couple decades. I say, you know, okay. And just as a side note, because some of you mistakenly we'd think, oh, yeah, some brides, like a little submissive bride. Actually, in the case I was just reviewing my mind recently, thinking about this mess speculatively, the brides who insist on this, I think are brides who are going to have a big challenge doing this. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of you got it because you chuckled, okay? You chuckled. I, I, I know it. I think it's going to be a big challenge. So I think it was just very interesting to me. Uh, and I said, okay. And they said, you know, because it comes right out of the Bible. The Bible tells us that wives should obey their husbands. This is wives obey or wives submit. First Peter chapter three. Uh, let me just say this now. I'll get it out now. I'm getting ready to like, we had a flood on Monday with water. I'm getting ready to flood you with lots of scripture. And if you're a Bible geek and you like it, because I was talking to our newcomers table on the way out and Cody at the newcomer says, John, this has never happened before. When people left the service, multiple people said, I, give me one of those Bibles. So, so if you're a Bible geek, uh, you might want to grab your pen real quick because I'm just going to like start shooting. Like, hey, this will save me some emails. This is self-serving. <laughs> this is going to save me emails. I'm just going to like let the Bible verses flow. Okay, First Peter chapter three talks about wives submit and obey or whatever. The words are interchangeable a little bit there. Ephesians chapter five talks about it, and um, and so they'll say, well, I, I want it be, because of that. That. Um, that I should do that. And I'm not, I'm thinking, you know, when you think about those verses and you read them plainly in those two uh, passages, Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, you know, there's probably not too many uh, women who are like, 
I'm really excited about obedient submission, you know, to my husband. I want to proclaim that in front of the, all the, the whole world. So, but they feel it just comes right from the Bible, and so they insist on it being there. So is that a biblical thought? Is that a part of biblical um, marriage vows? Is that, is that a part of it? It is not. It is clearly not. You don't find that any place in the Bible as a part of biblical marriage vows. There's four biblical marriage vows. I will cover them in a second and we'll cover them in detail next week. And they are not a part of biblical marriage vows. Wives submitting or wives obeying to their husband is a Greek moral obligation or a Greek moral regulation that was instituted. What was happening is divorce was rampant, immorality was rampant, and they were trying to to get a handle on society. And the belief was that the family unit was the foundation to a stable society. So the Greeks said that we've got to do something about this. And what was happening is, is you had Greek women, and this later happened to the Romans too, and they said, you know what? We want to be free just like our husbands are free. And our husbands are running around having affairs, so we want to be able to run around and having affairs too. And I'm not saying that all women did this, but this was a regular practice because divorce and affairs were rampant. They said, he's running around having affairs, I want to running and having affairs just like he is. He's going out and getting drunk. I want to go out and get drunk too just like he is doing. He's squandering money. I want to go out and squander money like he is too. He goes out to the track and bets on the chariot races. I want to go out and bet on the chariot races just as well. And so you had a guy come along, not very well known. The guy's name is Aristotle. I don't know if any of you ever heard of Aristotle, right? I said in the first service and it was like, who? Who's Aristotle? Anyway, so Aristotle, so Aristotle, came along and said this. He said, the man is the head of the household. So that's where it came from. This is Greek thought. Aristotle is like 4th century BC, right? He got, the man is the head of the household. And the only way that we're going to build a strong society and not just kind of like break down into immorality so that our nation can be strong is that we've got to have the man is the head of the household and the wife needs to obey and the children need to obey. And if everybody would be submissive to the husband of the household, all conflicts would cease. And the Romans picked up on that philosophy. The Romans picked up on Aristotle's philosophy. And some of you know this, but Caesar Augustus said, because so many people were getting divorced, and some people were saying, well, I'm not even going to get married. I'm just going to run around and have affairs. He's like, oh my gosh, immorality is rampant, and people don't want to have kids. And, and, and actually, um, what do they call it? Exposure, exposure to infants. They would just leave infants out. They would be born, they'd leave them out, let, let them die. And one of the things Christians did is they went around, they, they, they gathered up all the babies who were left on doorsteps or at dumps. They would leave them at dumps or whatever. And so Caesar came along and says, look, hey man, we're falling apart here when the Romans came into power. Like, we've got to stabilize the situation. So he actually issued a law that people had to get married. And if they got divorced, they had to get remarried because they had to do something to stabilize. So there's the background. It is not a biblical. You won't find that anywhere in the Hebrew Bible that wives have to obey the husband as a marriage vow. It's not instituted. But what you find is you find Peter and Paul, both of them writing about this, about something that's tremendously popular. Now, does that context help you at all? Does that help you to understand what's being said? Because some people read that and they go running from the Bible. They go running from Jesus. They go running from church. And it's one of the things that's so frustrating. The very thing that we long for, the freedom that we hope for is actually in the Bible. What stands in between us is this huge barrier called context. And this is why in their context 2,000 years ago when they understood this, and this should always grab our attention, everybody. We're like, this is terrible. This is misogyny. This is ridiculous. 
Well, why then 2,000 years ago when it was written, do you find women running to the Bible and running to church because of freedom reasons, not oppressive reasons? And so that should always grab our attention. We should always say, what's up with that? And so when you find in 1 Peter chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, you find it talking about that concept about wives submitting or wives obeying. Peter and Paul both are commenting on it and they're saying yes. I thought, John, you just said no. No, they are actually saying yes with a very important twist to it. Something that all of us need to know. Ephesians 5.21, where Paul goes into this rant about wives submitting and living and the husbands head the household, he begins it by saying this, and this is radically progressive all the way to this day. It's radically progressive. He says, you husbands and wives should mutually submit one to another. That was radical. Like, what? We live in a world with this Greek philosophy 2,000 years ago where the husband is the head of the household and everybody in the household obeys him and that's the way it is. And Peter and Paul come along and say, actually, it's mutual submission. Now, there's a pastor. We're actually partners with a church in Atlanta. It's a pastor of a huge church down there. His name is Andy Stanley. He says, actually, what God is calling for in marriage is a submission competition. Now, I can, tell, I can tell you this much. I can tell you this much. After doing premarital counseling and reading dozens and dozens and dozens of books on marriage all my life, here's the deal. Either you're going to have two people who are mutually submitting. The word submissive basically means to serve each other. Two people who have hearts to serve each other and to love each other. Not one person up here and the other person serving down here. That's no good. Not where you have two people who refuse to serve each other. That's no good. That's a recipe for disaster. But two people say, you know what? I love you so much. I'm going to serve you. That is the recipe. Hands down. There's no doubt about this. It's hands down. That is the recipe for a magnificent marriage. And that's exactly what Paul says. Peter goes on to say, you should love your wives. You should honor your wives. And you should treat them tenderly. This is radically progressive. And this is why women and children rushed into church. Like, break the door down. I can't wait to get in. But that's misunderstood because of context. And so we come along. And all of our knowledge 2,000 years later, and we say, okay. So that's why context is really important. I'm going to end on that note, okay? Let's move on. You're tired of hearing about it, and I'm tired of speaking about it. All right. Here we go. Uh, There's a storyline in the Bible. So context creates clarity. We have to know that as a principle to understanding any text in the Bible. But there's there's something else we need to understand about the Bible, and that is the entirety of the storyline of the Bible. The entire Bible is all about marriage. Like the whole context of the Bible is about it begins with it begins with a marriage. The Israelites are in Egypt. They're oppressed, they're enslaved, and God sets them free. Nobody should oppress anybody else. And so they're set free. And he takes them out to Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, if some of you are like, what? Where is that? Okay, if you've ever seen that very long movie, The Ten Commandments, where Charlton Heston goes up, that's Mount Sinai, and he gets the Ten Commandments. All right, there you go. So actually what you see happening there is God is marrying the Israelites. They have a marriage. And the law is the basis of their marriage. 
they make vows and promises to each other, and then God picks up his bride, the Israelites, and carries them across the threshold of the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, Ezekiel chapter 16 is a chapter you might or you might not want to read. I studied this in college, and I'm just going to warn you right now, Ezekiel chapter 16, if you decide to read it, it is very graphic. Some might call it quite crude. And I don't know if that's why everybody ran out after the first service and grabbed one of them Bibles. But Ezekiel chapter 15, it's getting like, what's going on here? And you're not going to understand any of it unless you understand that God has married Israel. And what chapter 16 is telling us is that they have been persistently unfaithful to the four vows, the four vows of a biblical marriage. So let me give you those four vows. It's food. These are principal vows. It's food. It's clothing. It's conjugal love. And it's to be faithful, to not have an affair. Those are the four vows of a biblical marriage, right? Food means provision. The principle is to provide for each other. The clothing is protection. And then you have conjugal love, which goes beyond what you're thinking physical intimacy. It is a broader term than that. It could mean to be physically intimate, but it could also mean to hold somebody's hand or send them a text message or buy them flowers or do something for them that makes them feel special. You got to help me out with this because I got to figure this out between now. I get seven days to do this. So obviously the first one is provision. You have protection. I don't know what the P word is for conjugal. I'm trying to figure out if it's pleasing or it's pleasure, but if somebody has a good idea, let me have it. Okay, not now later. Okay. And then the last one is to be faithful and that could be promise. So those are the four vows that you had and what they did and what we're told very specifically in Ezekiel chapter 16 is they persistently, unrepentantly, repeatedly broke the vows and it's given to us in very graphic terms. One more thing. When they go into the promised land, And they're there for a while, and they have their ups, they have their downs, and eventually you have a king, and his name is David. He's the most famous king of Israel. It's the glory days of Israel. When he dies, his son Solomon, who's about 18 years old, prays for wisdom. He's called the wisest person to ever live. He begins to reign, and Israel just flourishes. Later in his life, Solomon became incredibly self-centered incredibly self-centered, and he oppressed the people, he abused the people, and so when he died and his son Rehoboam became the king, all the people came before them, and they said, O king, your father in his last days was a terrible person, basically. Will you treat us better? Will you stop overtaxing us? Will you stop oppressing us? Will you stop treating us so poorly? And he got his advisors together and the young ones and the old ones, and basically he goes back to the people and he says, tell the people this. Tell them that my finger is thicker than my father's waist, which basically means you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to press you so much you're not going to believe it. And with that moment, the kingdom of Israel split in two. And you have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel and the southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah. And so in the northern kingdom, you have prophets like Elisha and Elijah, right? And then in the southern kingdom, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? Prophesying. But now you have two different kingdoms. Now you understand Ezekiel 16. Because in Ezekiel chapter 16, we're told that that the northern kingdom was breaking their vows at a faster pace for centuries after centuries, at a faster pace than the southern kingdom of Judah. And here's the thing you need to know. 
Jeremiah 3, 8, Isaiah 50, verse 1, God divorces the northern kingdom. If you have experienced the pain of a divorce, the heartache of a divorce, what you need to know today is God has personally experienced the pain of a divorce because God has been divorced. God tells the southern kingdom through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, God says, Judah, you're heading the exact same way. That's the whole idea between the two sister thing in Ezekiel 16. You're heading the same way, and I'm about ready to divorce you. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, towards the end of that, God says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to start a new contract or a new covenant with my people. Something unheard of, something that no human being has ever heard of, and something that God has never done before in the history of the world. I'm going to create an unconditional covenant. You broke all the vows and all the stipulations of the marriage contract. I'm going to create a contract with you in which if you break the vows, it'll be unconditional. What the Bible calls it is an everlasting covenant. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And we're told that God is going to bring the two sisters back together, the northern and southern kingdom, to be one once again, and that there will be an everlasting covenant in which his spirit will fill us, and that we will be governed by grace. So as you read Romans chapter 7, everybody, and all of a sudden as you're reading about the great theology and the law and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Paul launches into this whole thing about marriage, you're like, what are you talking about? We're not talking about marriage at all. We've been talking about the law. We've been talking talking about grace, we're talking about the gospel, and all of a sudden you're on this marriage thing, what gives, Paul? And he says in there, if a, spouse is, is a, if a spouse dies, then the living spouse has been freed from that marriage, and they can go and marry anybody they want. And like, what does that have to do with the gospel? But then he says, you have died to the law. You've been married to the law with all of its stipulations that we as imperfect human beings can't keep. Stuff happens. Things go bad. It's not that we look at the law as any less than. We love it. We honor it. We appreciate it. But we have had the inability as imperfect human beings to keep the law. And he says, you have died to the law and now you're governed by grace. And that is why as you read through the New Testament about Jesus, he's constantly called the bridegroom. We're going to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are marrying Jesus Christ only if we have died. And that's why baptism is so important. Why Paul gets into that. Because in the act of baptism, you're showing, I'm dying to the old way of life. I'm dying to the stipulation of the law to be married by grace to Jesus Christ. So that's why Christ, in all the parables he tells, so many of the parables he tells, right? He's the bridegroom. We have been married. Jesus has created a new covenant for us. So if you've experienced the pain of divorce, and my family has experienced that for sure, what you really need to know today is that so is God. He's experienced in a very personal way. Now, I just want to say now that we're on this, that our prayer team is over here. We know this is very sensitive. And we'd be happy to pray with anybody on Grace Live. You have a prayer button. We'd be happy to pray with anybody because we know these things are extremely, extremely painful. All right, I would like to, uh, I'd like to conclude with this. Next week, 
we are going to really unpack uh, Matthew 19, particularly verse number 9. They're asking a very specific question that all of them knew and that we need to understand the context to. And for some of us, for some of us, it's going to be very difficult. We've grown very used to our own interpretation of it. And with that comfort, uh, we might get a little rigid. And so we need to prepare ourselves to see. And so the last fill-in-the-blank that I'd like to give you is that we must want to see. Because we're going to talk about this specific context that will create clarity for us next week in Matthew 19 for us to understand the words of Christ so much better. My daughter uh, told me a story, kind of a funny story about this truth. This really happened to somebody. I, I don't think she knew him. I think she was just reading it off a list of stories that are out there in the news or whatever. And uh, there was this guy, and I, he worked like three three 12-hour shifts back to back to back, like three 12s. And I'm assuming he worked, I don't know it, but I'm assuming he worked in the hospital because he did three 12s all of a sudden, like boom, boom, boom. And he was so exhausted. And if you've ever worked a lot of hours or if you've been to college and you've had exam week coming up, you know what I'm talking about. You just want to go home and go to bed so desperate. So he got off of this, right, 36-hour, you know, bonanza of working. All he wanted to do was go home, and he didn't live actually too far from where he was working. And he came walking out into the parking lot. He pulled his, you know, he pulled his keys out, and he hit that remote, you know, to unlock it. And the battery went dead or something was wrong. It didn't work. And he's like, oh, my gosh, of all days. He felt like just laying down on the ground and going to sleep right there. I can't, I just want to get home of all days. So he pulls out his phone real quick, and he looks for a locksmith. And thank goodness there was a locksmith, and they were close by. And they said, we'll dispatch somebody right away. And they came, and they got there really, really quick. And he was so thrilled. The guy comes driving up, and he sees you know, and he already knew the story about the 36 hours of work. He's like, sir, no problem. You lock your keys in the car. I'm going to get them out in the jiffy. And the guy says, no, 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 I didn't lock my keys in the car. This remote, it stopped where I can't get the thing to work. And the locksmith looked at him and said, sir, what are you? And he walks over to him and he grabs his keys and he puts them in the lock and he opens the lock. He says, here you go. That guy had been using that remote control so long, he forgot that he could actually use the key to unlock the door. And there he is, tired and exhausted on the outside when rest is right there for him on the inside. So uh, we're going to come to this passage next week. And some of us, some of us are just hurt by it. And we're like, you know, there's no other way to interpret it. I just don't like what Jesus says. And there's parts of the Bible I don't like. Others of us are on the opposite side of the fence. Like, you know what? That's just the way it is. Get over it. And what I want to challenge everybody with is that you come in next week with the desire to see. Because there is a very specific context here that needs to be understood. And once understood, you'll understand the beauty of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your journey with us, God. There, there's pain. There's pain from stuff that we experience in life. And Father, I just ask that you would bring comfort to those wounds and those pains. Help us to see clearly what you're saying to us in your holy word. In Christ's name, amen.